Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Okay, I'm here with Paul Meeks. Paul runs the Wireless Fund, symbol W-I-R-E-X, and he happens to be a a good buddy of mine. We worked together in the mid-90s. He was uh, the tech analyst and a portfolio manager at an institutional money manager that we both worked at called Jerika and Boyles. They were subsequently purchased by Natixis, which is a big holding company. And Paul's been in the investment business, what, 30 years now, right, Paul? Yeah, since uh, 1987. There you go. Yeah. Uh, have, have you spent most of your time in tech or were you, did you do some stuff that was more broad-based? Uh, so I would say that I got in the business, you know, coming out of undergrad in the mid eighties and I was, uh, broad. And then, uh, I got my, uh, MBA between 90 and 92. And when I happened to, uh, come out with, you know, my uh, money management firm du jour, right. Cause I've worked at a bunch of them over time. I actually was in a uh, bullpen with a lot of research analysts and a portfolio manager asked me to look at Intel. Yeah, the semiconductor company. And I did a good job on that project. And then more portfolio managers came to me on tech stuff and it kind of snowballed. So been in the business since 87, essentially tech sector focused on the public equity side since uh, 92. Because you're on CNBC and Bloomberg and, uh, and Fox News, all that stuff. Aren't you still doing some of that stuff? Yeah, what happened was um, actually at Drake and Boyles, where we both worked, I appeared on television the first time in uh, 95. But what happened was in the late 90s, I uh, took over the tech funds at Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, which is now part of BlackRock. And of course, uh, if you were the tech guy in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, during the inflation of the internet bubble, they could not get enough of you on television. I bet. So that's where it really took off. Interestingly enough, wherever I've gone ever since then, because I left Maryland about uh, 04 or so, CNBC in particular keeps calling. So I've appeared on television about every week, probably since the mid to late 90s. 
Well, I, I think uh, I think our conversation's probably pretty timely today, given uh, you know I mean tech stocks, as most people know, have been one of the best performers, not just you know over the year to date period, but I mean over most trailing periods all the way back to the '09 bottom, for some obvious reasons. You know when growth is scarce, people are willing to pay up for growth, and when rates are low, you know tech stocks uh, tend to be pretty you know pretty well bid and pretty popular. Obviously, we talked yesterday just a little bit about about the indexes. You know, what was the stat you used? The S&P is almost 50% tech if you include a couple of different sectors. Yeah, the way I define this, and whether it's the S&P 500 or the market, you have the tech sector, you have uh, what the S&P 500 is grouped as in communication services, and then you have the consumer discretionary sector, which of course these days is dominated and driven by the e-tailers like Amazon. So if you put those three cohorts together, you're getting, I call it tech, tech tech-ish innovators of some shape or form, almost 50% of the broad U.S. market. If you take a look at things like um, the NASDAQ 100, you know, the QQQ, or the NASDAQ composite, of course, the proportion of tech is going to be even greater than that. So it's essentially a uh, tech world these days, and we're all just living in it. Yeah. And and listen, I I understand the risk and the concern, but, you know, tech is a big part of everybody's life, not just here. I love a lot of the risk and the the fear-mongering that we get in the media sometimes, but you know, at the end of the day, tech drives a lot of what we do as people and what businesses do and how they stay efficient and productive. And I was looking at, you know, as the listeners know, I run the, with AccuVest, I run the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, and we're focused on global consumption through the most relevant brands. And we tend to just have about a, you know, a, a market weight of technology, but a lot of those names are what drives consumers' lives. And so it was pretty cool to see both of our performance do really well versus the market, but us doing it in a very different way. I think for today, first, you know, just set the stage for everybody. Talk a little bit about the wireless fund. And I think you said you took that fund over November of 18. So tell us a little bit about the fund and what its mandate is and, you know, how you've managed to outperform. And, you know, then we can maybe get into some stocks and stuff that you like. Of course. So the uh, wireless fund, uh, ticker symbol W-I-R-E-X, has actually been around since uh, about 2000. And, you know, think about who was ruling the uh, roost back in 2000, the technology sector, was the wireless companies. Remember uh, Motorola, Nokia, followed by BlackBerry before they all blew up and gave way to uh, Apple with the iPhone. And so, it would be uh, too disruptive to change the name of the fund, but it's a uh, much broader uh, tech fund today. And I only uh, got involved with it in November of 18. And so since then, it's been solid. Uh, and of course, by prospectus, all of our uh, stocks must have a wireless driver or a mobile driver. And of course, no surprise, if you don't have a mobile presence as a tech company today, you're probably not a tech company. So it's not too hard to kind of blend the old world and the new world, but you know, it's a technology fund. It probably would be better named XYZ Technology Fund. And it's uh, fairly concentrated. 
Uh, right now, we have about two dozen names, but that's even on the high side for us. Only three names comprise about 40% of the portfolio. And you know, just so you know them, they're Microsoft, Amazon, and NVIDIA. And so think about it, technology fund, looking for leadership companies here and abroad, and uh, concentrated. Typically about uh, 20 names, but the top couple names are going to have uh, big weight, almost as large as the uh, regulators allow. Okay. I mean, listen, we can all buy the five basis point index fund and, you know, have a broad diversification across industries, et cetera. But I mean, I personally love the concentration. We have, by mandate, we have, uh, we have to be 25 to 50 names. We're about 37 right now. You know, if, if the market keeps being volatile and goes down a little bit further, I tend to like to cluster into my favorites, you know, after a correction. So, you know, at the top end, we have a little bit more names than we usually have. And at the bottom, like in March, we had probably under 30 in March. And if we get more, you know, more weakness, we'll probably do the same. It was fun to look at the, the names that we both own in the, the brands fund as well as the wireless. So it's Amazon, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Apple, Google, Facebook, Alibaba, Tencent, PayPal, Visa, and JD. So we got the Asia consumer spending theme with these names together. And then we have a lot of the social names as well as the consumer tech and and obviously the Microsoft and the NVIDIA with some of the the IT and the data center and video gaming, et cetera. So some really good names that were similar, but then you got a bunch of names that one aren't even in my brands index, so I couldn't own them. So do you have any particular thoughts on tech, you know, the different sub industries of tech right now? Would love to, you know, hear. Yeah. So, I mean, you can go uh, broader, but I really like uh, what you're doing because with what you do, you do have a big tech component. And I would feel very comfortable telling clients that when, you know, what hits the fan, that my buddy uh, Eric invests in the biggest brand names on planet Earth. Because I believe in the tech sector, and it probably goes for other sectors of the economy as well, that the strong get stronger. And I think we've even seen some of that uh, during COVID. You know, the uh, haves are becoming uh, even stronger and uh, taking share from the have-nots, which may not even make it. As far as uh, being a tech investor, you know, I can only go in the sector. So this is what I do. If you are going to be a self-respecting tech investor, you have to get one decision right. When semiconductors are in favor, you got to be heavy semiconductors. And when semiconductors are out of favor, you got to be underweight. That is the biggest decision, I think, among all of the industries that make up the uh, tech sector. So I don't try to play a lot of games by raising cash because people invest with us because they want you to be essentially fully invested in tech. And it's, of course, a fool's game to try to time the market. But I try to get the uh, cyclical risk on off right by being overweight or underweight semiconductors and semiconductor capital equipment stocks at the right time. Uh, we had been out of them for a while to play some defense. And actually, uh, recently, we've been getting back in. And if this tech correction that we've seen over the last couple of sessions continues, I imagine that we beef up our semiconductors uh, even more. You know, my favorite stock just happens to be a semiconductor name not in the near term, but over the next two or three years, where I think it's easily going to double is Micron Technology MU. Right now, it's number four out of uh, 
26 stocks in the wireless fund. And at the right time, I would expect uh, Micron to be a bigger position for us. It might be bigger than Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, all Microsoft, all of the uh, familiar tech names, which obviously are going to be cores in any tech portfolio. You know, every December we update the brand's 200 index. And so that's when we get a chance to, to do the, the analysis to make sure that we keep the most relevant brands. And we have a small component of semiconductors because obviously they're not particularly selling directly to consumers. So we tend to just try to pick the ones that have the strongest trends just to have some exposure there. Right now we have Taiwan Semi, we have Broadcom and NVIDIA. So what is it about Micron that you really like? Because I I don't know that name very well. Yeah. So Micron is uh, one of the three companies worldwide that dominate the space for uh, memory chips, either DRAM or NAND flash chips. And so first of all, there is never a problem with demand in that space because we have a voracious appetite for storage whether it be in cell phones or high-performance computing or in all kinds of gadgets, even you know consumer gadgets that you might be more involved in. The problem is it's a commodity-oriented industry. Demand is always robust, but sometimes there is oversupply. And what happens with a commodity when you have uh, supply exceed demand? You, know, you have prices plummet. And so unfortunately, over time, the history has had, uh, or the history of the industry has been feast or famine. But I think what's happened is in recent years, we've gotten rid of a lot of the fringe players, and now it's dominated by uh, a couple of majors, including Micron. And these days, the industry is more consolidated, so it's safer in the downturns, and also it's run by smarter people that don't overspend on industry supply. So I think it gets sometimes a low valuation, because of that uh, knock from its history, but I think it's a different company now. And we have some great drivers ahead of us, particularly 5G wireless. And here is a company that when the going is good, they earn $12 earnings per share per year. And that is not just a fantasy or a calculation or a forecast. This is what they did in 2018. Now this year, they're gonna earn two bucks. And so, unless we have COVID-2, and the economy has you know, some sort of rally, it doesn't have to be even that robust. You have a uh, stock that's trading at 49 and it can do $12 in earnings per share fearly quickly on the next uh, up cycle. And I think it deserves a better valuation on any number because it's not as commodity feast or famine as it had been given the consolidation in the industry of the last couple of years. Uh, Part of it is because they brought in a a CEO a few years ago, and uh, I think he is terrific and much better leadership than the company's had before. And of course, he's driving some of these things that makes it not a safe bet in a downturn, but less worrisome than it had been under uh, previous iterations of management. Right. So I like Micron. I uh, don't know what's going to happen in the near term. Uh, but I do think over the next couple of years, the $50 stock easily goes to $100 stock. Well, in what I think might be a, a difficult market for the next three years, that would be a hell of a return. <laughs> yeah. Are there any signs that, that people should pay attention to, to, to maybe indicate that there's a trough? I mean, how does one know 
when the cycle goes from bad to improving to, you know, in the sweet spot? Yeah. So the biggest driver for Micron, you know, going forward, as far as the uh, demand for its chips is 5G wireless. And so uh, if you were a bear and we're going to say, well, 5G is uh, a driver, but it's not next year, it's five years from now. Uh, the bulls are uh, too optimistic. I think that would be a negative. But what you do is uh, not only do you follow the quarterly results of all these semiconductor supply chain companies, but their customers, and also you very uh, closely track their inventories and also what they're saying about their uh, book to bill ratio, you know, how much orders they have versus uh, revenues recognized. I mean, those are all trends that give us you know, not the perfect visibility of the future. You never have that, but some confidence that we're not getting in right before something plummets. I think that um, the March quarter, right? The March quarter of 2020 was the uh, trough quarter for Micron for this particular cycle, barring we uh, don't have COVID too. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I mean... If, if I step back a little bit and just put on my technical guy hat, you know, uh, the, the chart of the NASDAQ, the QQQ, I mean, for now, that chart looks like a little bit of a rounding top, you know, and yeah. you kind of, you know, today we bounced. Uh, I haven't looked at it lately to see if we're holding that bounce, but it's a Friday. I'm not really going to worry too much about that, but I suspect we have a little bit of a, of a little rally that into next week to back to the top of that little channel you know, 260 to 262 on the QQQ. And that's, to me, that's like a pass-fail test for this market and for, for tech in general. So it's going to be interesting to see if we can bounce where we should bounce. We did so far this morning. We'll see if that holds into the close. You know, when I look at your portfolio, I mean, there's obviously been some, some killer names. I'd love to hear your opinion about a couple of names in particular that I have access to. This is a selfish request. I mean, Trade Desk is, is one that's, that's super popular. Obviously, it's been a little bit difficult with digital advertising, but we know where the trends are headed. So I'd love to hear your opinion about Trade Desk. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Trade Desk is uh, interesting and, you know, they're playing the digital advertising theme, but they're agnostic, right, uh, uh, to Facebook or Google you know, I do worry about the valuation a little bit, and that's why I have it in the portfolio, uh, but it's not particularly a large position, and I watch it pretty carefully, but obviously so far so good as far as the performance of that name. But despite the pushback and all the nasty PR, particularly at Facebook, not uh, so much at Google, um, you know, it's uh, irrefutable that you're seeing uh, advertising move from traditional media to digital advertising. So there'll be some uh, blips. There might be some controversy about uh, ads that folks are uh, seeing in their feeds, particularly as we get close to the presidential election in November. Um, but no uh, controversy at all that there won't be a continued uh, robust transition to digital advertising. And TTD seems to be uh, well-positioned and actually a fairly tightly managed company. So I really respect them. But it's, given its valuation, it's going to be small unless it uh, really plummets its stock price for some reason that I think is transitory, not structural. Then that's probably the only reason I would uh, beef up the position because, man, it's uh, pretty expensive. Obviously, Facebook is a very disputed name. 
you know, on the one side, we have the 2 billion users. And, you know, we joked with the other day, I mean, neither one of us really enjoy Facebook, but we both understand the power of Instagram. The stock isn't particularly expensive when you compare it to the other tech world. So curious what your your view is on Facebook here and, you know, short term and, and bigger picture, because they're working on some pretty good things, even if I don't yeah. love the name Facebook or, or Zuckerberg's leadership. Yeah, I think Facebook is a, uh, a core holding right now because it has less of a PR drag. We're a little bit more aggressive with uh, Google. You know, uh, shortly in the next week or so, we'll see the quarterly results for both companies. You know, unfortunately, uh, Facebook has taken uh, a PR strategy. You know, they're caving a little bit to, um, you know, some of the protest movement. But, you know, Zuckerberg, particularly in his public statements, is always, you know, defending uh, the First Amendment. And um, he's been intransigent with that uh, particular call. And it continues to hurt the company. In the meantime, operationally, they're doing pretty well. And I think sooner or later, uh, even though since he's a larger shareholder, he only has to impress himself, <laughs> sooner or later, he will face uh, enough pressure that I think Facebook, and you're starting to see a little bit on some of the uh, uh, policies on the periphery, sooner or later, I think they will give in and uh, they will compromise uh, with the protest movement. They'll meet somewhere in between. And I think that's uh, smart because you know, fighting this uh, trend is just, it may not hurt you uh, financially, but the PR uh, beating that they're taking will continue until they compromise. And I think they should compromise. And I think Zuckerberg being the most stubborn guy on the planet, even he will compromise at some point. And at that point, I think I'll probably feel better about Facebook. But right now I got it uh, in the penalty box. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, we own it, but it's not a, it's not a, a big position relative to some other stuff. And, you know, I'm just looking at the chart while we're talking, you know, technically 218 to 220 might be a better place to add to that. So it'll be interesting to see if we get uh, any further weakness, maybe around earnings next week. I think you said next. Yeah, um, yeah right now it's uh, testing its uh, 50 day. And even though tech stocks have come in the last couple of sessions, most of the marquee tech names are still uh, well above their 50-day moving averages. But uh, Facebook has actually got a pretty scary test going right now. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah it probably uh, breaks uh, significantly one direction or another once they announce their results in the next couple of days. I don't know enough about what they're uh, saying or what they're going to say about their uh, forecast. I don't think there's going to be too much damage to their uh, quarterly results, the ones that are now in the rearview mirror. But um Again, it's all about uh, PR and less about the financials with that one. Yeah. Certainly one of our themes has been the Asia consumer. And, you know, in some ways we are following them. I mean, from an artificial intelligence perspective, they seem to be just well positioned for the future. And in some cases are putting the U.S. and some of our companies in the hurt locker. And you have, you know, you have 350 million Asia millennials. And those people use their mobile phones for everything. And so, you know, like I said, we have in common, we have Alibaba, we have JD, and we have Tencent. So I, I would love to hear your comments on the, on the Asia theme, because they are clearly wanting to be, you know, taken seriously on the world stage. There's 2 billion, I think there's 2 billion people in Asia, and particularly in China, they don't want our brands to dominate their country. They want their brand to dominate their country and to dominate Asia. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the, 
you know. Yeah, the uh, the Trump rhetoric aside, and of course, you know, now we're a, a tit for tat where we closed uh, their consulate, then they closed our consulate. Uh, you know, this really uh, bugs me, this rhetoric going back and forth, but I guess you expect that in election season. Uh, but yeah, I uh, like all the Chinese names. I think they have some uh, great um, secular growth ahead of them. Frankly, uh, much more so than even the marquee U.S. names. Uh, I own Alibaba, NetEase, JD, Tencent. I have my eye on the private but very exciting geo platforms out of uh, India because all of the American majors have made a significant contribution. And I think Facebook's uh, most exciting um, driver over the next couple of years, because we we're just talking about Facebook, is what they're going to do with shopping and uh, to monetize both Instagram and WhatsApp, not necessarily in the States, but abroad, specifically in India. I think that's a uh, really uh, cool strategy on their part. And then the other thing is, particular to COVID, you know, they uh, went into COVID before us. And uh, they're going to come out of uh, COVID before us. And so um, just pandemic-wise, uh, those companies should be better positioned than some of ours. And so, um, yeah, I like uh, all of them. The only major Chinese company that I don't like because I'm just not uh, so into uh, search advertising is Baidu. All of the other Chinese majors are in the portfolio to uh, varying degrees. Baidu just, yeah, Baidu obviously was, was, had the early lead and then just, I don't know if they lost their way or if consumption trends shifted away from search and, and into, you know, into Alibaba or Tencent and, you know, I, I'm not really sure, but we never added Baidu to the brands index. And, you know, at, at the end of every year, I do love to, to do the analysis just to see. And I, I suspect that we'll definitely be adding more, you know, more China names like a Mituan or a Pinduoduo or something like that. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, what comes out of the analysis that we do at the end of the year. Yeah. Another thing I would say, uh, which makes me feel uh, strongest over time about uh, Alibaba, uh, one of the drivers of the uh, price performance of Amazon and um, Microsoft was that uh, they got into cloud computing. And of course, cloud computing, every time they announced their quarterly results is the focus point. You know, it's not... Uh, you know, PC operating system software for Microsoft, and it's not the e-tailing business for Amazon. People don't realize that Alibaba uh, has a strong and fast-growing cloud business, very uh, similar to uh, Microsoft's Azure and Google's Google Cloud and Amazon's AWS. And once people realize the strength and the growth rate of Alibaba's cloud business, not just in China, but beyond China as they spread their tentacles. And that is uh, seen as the next cloud play. That could be really big as a driver for Alibaba's stock price. So I look at that, uh, frankly, uh, more closely than I do other more obvious aspects of Alibaba's business in China. Do you have any sense of how Asia perceives China? Obviously, in the U.S., we get all the negative China rhetoric, right? And I have my own views. You know, the, the U.S. has been the big dog for, for 50 years, and we have the world's reserve currency. And, you know, we have some benefits that other countries don't. And other countries would love those benefits. 
And so there's certainly a, a reason for China to want to take some of the benefits that we have and have them for themselves. And so there's going to be this back and forth with U.S. and China as we kind of jockey for the lead, you know, the head dog. I'm not really sure why there can't be two head dogs, but that's yeah. politics and leadership. But I wonder how Asia perceives China. You know, do other Asian countries that have lots of growth for particular tech companies, do they want to do more business with the U.S. or do they kind of side with China and start to turn more towards China tech? you know, which is obviously difficult for, for maybe some U.S. companies. I don't know. I think, I don't know I think his, historically everybody wants to, uh, you know, partner with the states, uh, but they see the uh, trends that everybody else sees, right? That there are uh, billions of people that could be uh, potential consumers, particularly in uh, China and India. And uh, the growth rate is uh, uh, much faster. Right. Uh, even during the pandemic, you know, China's uh, GDP is going to grow this year, whereas the GDP of the rest of the world, depending on how long it takes us to uh, come out of the bonding process, is going to be devastated. And so everybody knows that um, the next uh, you know, big opportunity in tech or otherwise is uh, China and India. And I think it's very interesting that all the major companies, U.S. or otherwise, have been piling in. They can't invest more quickly enough in this geo platform in India, which is going to be a wireless build out in which they hope to sell a whole lot of stuff to a very large, fast growing population. And that's your next e-commerce play. So, yeah, you want to be involved with the states. No surprise. But we all see uh, greater potential. Uh, abroad. Okay. Now, aside from Micron, you have a couple of other names that are just, you know, kind of your favorites. And, you know, I mean, Amazon is obviously, the, it looks like the biggest position, but that, you know, and maybe you think that that stock has the most potential upside. I mean, it's my biggest position too. It's probably most growth managers' biggest position, which always makes me a little nervous. But what other names that are kind of outside of people's radar that you think might even have some really, you know, explosive upside? over the next couple of years, if there's any. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'll first quickly comment on Amazon. You know, even at this uh, price level, it's my uh, favorite stock among, you know, the big five or six, however you define them, of tech stocks in the States, because I see with them a longer runway than any of the other players, right? Facebook has a PR problem. Google already owns such a big slice of the pie. It's hard for them to uh, continue to grow that quickly. I think Apple is going to hit the wall uh, with the iPhone and there's not enough behind it that's going to sustain that company's growth. Microsoft is so large. Same kind of problem as uh, Google. I mean, it's going to be hard for them to grow faster overall revenues than the maybe the low teens. But Amazon, I think, can continue to grow at a 20 to 30 percent top line clip for a long time because they seem to find one industry after another in which they disintermediate the traditional players. You know, think about what they could do in transportation. You know, sooner or later, it's all Amazon. There's no uh, UPS, FedEx, or even the U.S. Postal Service. And once they do that, what a big industry that is. How about healthcare? Sooner or later, Amazon Prime is going to deliver your meds. And then they're going to take uh, Walgreens and CBS to the woodshed. 
And so these industries that they can particularly uh, go into are very large and it's going to uh, continue to propel their growth. So regulation though, when you get that big and that dominant, you know, you, you get on people's radar screens and then they start breaking you up. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the sum of the parts aren't still attractive, but it might mean that, you know, if, if, if in some way they force Amazon to split up, you know, AWS in its own business and, and then the retail business in its own business, you know, AWS has been funding other things for Amazon. So AWS might be the most undervalued company if and when they're forced to spin it out, but that also might push, you know, some people to hit the sell button on some of the other parts of Amazon's business. I, I don't know. I'd be curious your thoughts on the breakup. It'll, it'll be annoying when we have to, uh, instead of following just uh, AMZN, right. uh, we have to follow four, you know, companies, all publicly traded. Um, yeah, I guess that could happen, but I don't know if overall um, – uh, market cap is not going to uh, continue to grow. And then the other thing I didn't mention, which I think is pretty important is, you know, they're the, uh, uh, with their own digital advertising, they're the fastest growing media company in the United States, if not the world right now. And so think about the value of Amazon's digital media piece. That's another big business. Yeah. that uh, could be uh, really interesting, just like uh, the big jump that they had in their valuation when Amazon Web Services, you know, came uh, uh, on the scene in 2006. And so, yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. Other companies, you yeah. know, other companies that I like, you know, I do think whether it's uh, near term or intermediate term, we can all quibble because, you know, obviously there's some delays given COVID, but 5G is going to be a pretty big deal. And I continue to think that uh, some of these 5G plays, even if the market gets uh, roughed up, even if the tech sector gets uh, roughed up, uh, you have some uh, good opportunities. Uh, American Tower, I see that you own that one. Crown Castle, SBAC. And then, uh, you know, these are uh, REITs that give you, um, you know, some nice visibility. And I think that they're, uh, ways to still have upside participation with 5G, but less risk. And then you also have some uh, uh, REITs like uh, Equinix that are not uh, cell tower REITs, but they're data center REITs. And that area is also uh, pretty strong and will continue to be strong. And so you think about ways to get tech exposure to play some of these grand themes at a more reasonable valuation. So I kind of like, uh, you know, that cohort as well. Isn't there a, an activist in, in Crown Castle right now? Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, the company, if you've been a shareholder, has been a pretty good one. So it's not like we're uh, having a activist shareholder, you know, spooking a horrible management team that hasn't delivered. The, uh, you know, complaint there is uh, it could be better. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I like, uh, uh, Crown Castle and I like all those, uh, you know, there's three major, uh, wireless tower, uh, REITs actually two are in the REIT structure and the other one isn't, mm -hmm. uh, but they will continue to be uh, strong. And then at the right time, you know, we talked about semiconductors just now, you have the component vendors that also play into, uh, that theme and, you know, Micron is a big one. 
um, with 5G handsets, you know, the jump that you have uh, in the next iteration of the iPhone is a huge jump in both uh, DRAM and NAND flash content. And so again, uh, you are going to have uh, increased accelerating demand for some of those components. And then I feel that Micron now is, and its uh, industry competitors are better managing supply, so we don't have that feast or famine. But it's going to be exciting. Uh, it may not be as soon as people thought because of the COVID delay in the supply chain, but 5G is coming and 5G is going to be a big deal. Is there, you know, is China or some other countries ahead of us on 5G or is everybody kind of on the same playing field and building their own 5G networks? Yeah, well, of course, uh, this is another thing that worries me. Everybody knows that, um, uh, you know, the center of Trump's um, rhetoric, you know, uh, versus the Chinese is this company, Huawei. Now, Huawei is super important because Huawei is the world's number one telecom equipment vendor, which should be um, easing the path to uh, 5G, but we've got them locked out. And uh, they're also uh, the number two handset vendor. So number one in equipment, number two in handsets. Actually, it's in handsets. It's Samsung, Huawei, followed by Apple globally. And so, Eric, it's a great question you asked because I'm uh, really worried that uh, beating up on Huawei, we are going to uh, uh, knock ourselves out of some important 5G technology. And uh, we could put the United States, even though we're trying to say that we're going to um, uh, eliminate Huawei to give the U.S. an advantage. I actually think it could backfire. If Huawei is uh, no longer in the picture for um, uh, U.S. telecom vendors, we could go from being in the pole position for 5G to actually stepping back behind the Chinese. And so, unfortunately, this whole geopolitical mess, I actually think, could be a disadvantage uh, to American telecom. Interesting. So if Huawei is the leader and we are, you know, kind of blocking them, what American companies are we going to turn to to try to replace them? Yeah, that's the uh, problem is... Um, we don't really have a American uh, giant in telecom equipment anymore. You know, some of them went uh, by the wayside in the 90s when the uh, internet bubble uh, popped. Uh, the closest thing we have is Cisco Systems, but that's more of a data networking company than a telecom equipment vendor. And so to answer your question, who fills the void left from uh, uh, Huawei being kicked to the curb? It's uh, Nokia and Ericsson, but neither one of those are U.S. vendors. But uh, Cisco should pick up some um, uh, incremental share here in the States. I don't think I saw Nokia or Ericsson on, the, on your list. Have you no, I don't, I don't own them now. I keep an eye on them. And I also keep an eye on uh, Cisco more so than the other three because it's a U.S. company. The problem with Cisco is, you know, Cisco's glory days were in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And so now it's uh, a mature company with a mature growth rate. And I think you buy Cisco systems because you want to have um, a call option on some growth while you clip the coupon, i.e. it pays a very lush dividend for a tech company. But I'm looking for price appreciation, not uh, dividends from my tech investments. And so Cisco hasn't been in my portfolio for quite a while. 
it looks like as of uh, last night's earnings call, Intel might be the next old tech paying a big dividend that uh, that goes by the wayside. Any quick thoughts? Oh, man. Intel is in a uh, world of hurt. So they were struggling to manufacture chips using 10 nanometer technology when their key competitor, AMD, is already at 7 nanometer. And last night on their conference call, uh, Intel admitted that they will not have uh, 7 nanometer chips for volume production for customers until very late 2022 or 2023. And we're in July of 2020 now. And so that is uh, really nasty for Intel and a uh, real um, boost for AMD, which was a company you know, 10 years ago that people uh, laughed at. I think Intel at some point is going to have to make a decision. Of all the major semiconductor companies, they're really the only one uh, or among the very few that still actually manufactures their own chips. Everybody else designs a chip in Silicon Valley, California, and then sends it to uh, Asia for Taiwan Semiconductor to make it. You know, TSMC is in your portfolio. I think at some point, uh, Intel may throw in the towel and they'll become a design house and they'll go to the outsourced uh, chip manufacturer like everybody else. Frankly, they probably should have done it a long time ago because now uh, trying to do it on their own, they're getting not a little bit behind. They are getting way behind. Yeah, I mean, if they're saying they're going to deliver something in three years, I mean, that means they're going to start, what, Monday on the whole project? I <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, – oh, that's why today, you know, uh, Intel, uh, at least earlier today, was down 10 or 15% on that announcement, and AMD was up 5 or 10% on the announcement, uh, even in a bad day for overall tech stocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that's another example. Uh, sometimes people get in their head – that these uh, tech leaders never change positions. If you had that uh, thought process, then today you would have a portfolio, you know, loaded to the gills with PC stocks like Hewlett Packard and uh, old school 90s tech companies like Intel and Cisco. And you put yourself at a great disadvantage, man. Tech leadership changes. You got to be on top of it. Because even today, we say the big five or six are tech. You know, we talk about the Microsoft, the Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Ten years from now, will they be the same? Probably not. Yeah. Last stock chat. What's your thought on Adobe? I mean, you know, they always say software is eating the world. And Adobe has been really good at opening new markets. And they're doing a lot of work on the retail stuff with big data. Just curious. I mean, obviously, it's an expensive stock. All software stocks are expensive. But if you uh, have any thoughts on Adobe, I'd love to hear them. Yeah. So Adobe, I think, should be a core position in folks' portfolio. That means that uh, you have a stake in the ground, like any company, right? They're all run by human beings. Sooner or later, they will miss a quarter. And when they do, tech stocks don't go down 2% when they miss quarters. They go down 20. So you will have your chance to buy it. But Adobe... uh, is a dominant player. Uh, their CEO, Narian, who came in a couple of years ago, I think he's one of the uh, best in all of Silicon Valley. And so uh, what I do is I have it as a core position. I might be tempted to buy some on a dip and I might uh, sell some if it continues on this path and becomes you know, grossly overbought. But uh, I think it's a must have. You just got to pick your time. Well, I think both of us are, you know, we talked the other day about there's lots of ways to manage a portfolio. And, you know, 
Some people just like to buy their favorite names and turn the portfolio over very little and just kind of ride through every storm. My own particular view is that uh, I don't like making money and then giving a bunch of money back. So, and maybe it's because I have a bit of a trader's bias. Um, I used to do that for my living. And so, you know, I love to have good core positions in names. And then, like you said, when the market does get a little irrational, you get a chance to to tactically add to those names strictly for a trade and let the core just, you know, ride through the storm. And that's, you know, if you're, if you're good at that and the market gives you an opportunity, you get a chance to add some alpha just around the core names because volatility is high. And I don't know about you, but I, with all the uncertainty out there, it just feels like volatility is probably going to stay pretty well bid for at least through the end of this year. And I'm still a little bit nervous about next year if you know the real ramifications of this slowdown and high unemployment with a fed maybe who 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 kind of pulls back the reins a little bit if covid starts to get better then the market can really look at the actual economic situation we're in and might readjust but you know for at least for this year the fed is going to be with their foot on the gas pedal probably through the end of the year even if we have some volatility, that's great for trading. And, you know, tech stocks, because they have higher volatility in general, sometimes you get a chance to just have some great trading opportunities around the core. I don't know if you do the same. Yeah. Yeah. What a way I look at it is you have your core names and we discussed some of them uh, when they are, uh, I like to play the pendulum, right? The pendulum never uh, stops very long at fair value. It can swing uh, in a wide arc from, uh, uh, grossly undervalued to grossly overvalued. And uh, when it's grossly undervalued, you pick some more up and vice versa when it's uh, grossly overvalued. And so that's the bulk of your portfolio. And then you do have some trading opportunities like, uh, you know, Trade Desk. We talked about that before. That's a trading opportunity for me. That has not earned its right to be a core position yet, but you have those opportunities that come and go. And then the last thing I try to do is I remember I told you that I am cognizant about when to be overweight or underweight semiconductors, because that's the big driver, that decision for tech investors. And then lastly, when it's obvious times to play D, right? When tech is out of favor, I try to have, uh, instead of generating a lot of cash in a portfolio, uh, because I can't time the market, I play D by buying techish names, lower vol tech names, something like uh, MasterCard and Visa, right? Rather than Amazon and Trade Desk. And so I retreat to play defense, not in cash, but in techish names that I can still say are at least loosely tech, but they're not going to be so volatile. Then when the uh, tech is back on, you know, you go back into the, uh, the same old, same old. Given this little correction we've had here, are you more inclined to add to the defense basket or are you getting more interested in adding more to the offense basket as we pull back here? Oh, that's a, that's a great question because, you know, we haven't had an opportunity to buy the offensive names for a while, right? Because they've been going up nonstop. Uh, they are going up nonstop before COVID and then particularly during COVID where they are seen as these, uh, you know, relatively defensive remote working place. Um, I am more inclined to uh, play offense if this uh, short-term correction we've seen in technology continues to... Uh, uh, last. Like there are some stocks that are really quality companies like Netflix. When they announced their results the other day, the stock took a, uh, a big dive. 
there are going to be some great opportunities. Of course, here we are talking on July 24th. Uh, the marquee tech companies, for the most part, all report their quarters next week. We could have some volatility. And if I think it's a transitory problem with a company and not a structural or long-term problem, then I uh, am convinced it's time to play offense and add on dips to some of those names that we've discussed. Yeah, I mean, selfishly, I would much rather go into next week's big tech earnings kind of fearful and on the lows. You know, it's just a much better setup than going into these things hot the way Netflix did and Microsoft did. There was that immediate sell the news reaction. But if we can go into those things still a little bit oversold and with this bias against tech, to me, that's the prescription for a bit of an upside reversal. And maybe today is the early part of that. Again, it's Friday. So, you know, traders like to buy the dip and then day trade and then go home on a Friday. So who knows if we'll hold that reversal today. But to me, I, I'm kind of liking the setup into next week. And then it's, like, like I said, it's the pass-fail test to see if the NASDAQ can get over this little rounding top short term. So it's going to be a very interesting week, my friend. Oh, yeah. Like uh, a week from today, right? Uh, Friday, the 31st, we'll essentially have all of the uh, tech majors have reported their uh, June quarters. And uh, if they dare to, have given guidance for uh, the next quarter or beyond. At that point, we'll have a very good sense as to how these uh, companies stack up within the tech sector and how the tech sector stacks up against the broader market. All right, my friend. Well, again, for everybody that'll be listening to this, Paul Meeks, the portfolio manager for the Wireless Fund, symbol W-I-R-E-X. I have known Paul since the mid-90s. And I literally, any question I have on technology, he's the first call I make. So, Paul, I really appreciate you being a part of the podcast, and I'll get you a copy of this thing. And, uh, you know, if people are looking for some allocations towards something dedicated to technology and the the 5G build-out, the wireless fund would be a good choice to take a look at. In the notes when I publish them, is there an email or something if people have a, you know, advisors have a question on the fund, or is it available at Schwab? And any other places, or is Schwab the, the primary place? Uh, Schwab, uh, Fido, uh, a couple of others. But, yeah, just uh, uh, reach out. You know, Eric will have uh, my contact details. And, yeah, I like talking to financial advisors. You know, I'm the most extroverted analyst you've ever met. So, man, <laughs> uh, please uh, call or write me directly. Sounds like a plan. All right, man, have a good weekend, buddy. All right, thanks uh, for doing this. Awesome. Absolutely. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.